Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hello and welcome to the X Book Club for Thursday, June 17th. This is Hannah Rosen. I am the co-editor of X. I'm here in the Washington studio with our friend Margaret Talbot from The New Yorker, who is joining us today. Hi there. And we have Emily Bazelon, the other editor of X and a Slate editor in New Haven. Hi, Emily. Hey, guys. Today we will be discussing The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, which is written by science reporter Rebecca Skloot, who's a sometimes Slate writer. And this is a book about a woman named Henrietta Lacks, who is the source of what are known as HeLa cells, which are used to do a lot of scientific research. And it's kind of an amazing story about the life of Henrietta Lacks and also scientific experimentation. They have used these cells for years and years in scientific research, but they never really told her family. So what author Rebecca Sklut does is track down various members of her family and thus unfolds an amazing scientific story and also a human story. I will just start by saying I thought this was a, like, a masterful work of nonfiction. I mean, there are, you know, we know the nonfiction masters, like, you know, say Michael Lewis. His books are always very artfully constructed or sort of Susan Orleans in which they're very sort of beautifully written. This, this I think, works on the strength of its reporting, but the way she unfolds the story, I mean, the way she tracks down members of the family, I thought was really quite masterful. Emily, do you want to say a little bit about kind of how the reporting unfolds and what happens, sort of how the book is structured and what we discover along the way? So, Rebecca, I know her just a little bit. I guess we could call her Sklut throughout this. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Call um, her Rebecca. Rebecca. Okay. That's okay. <laughs> um, Rebecca starts by telling us that in high school, her biology teacher first mentioned the notion that there was this woman, Henrietta Lacks, who was the person behind these cells that have been incredibly important to the development of all kinds of aspects of science. And it really seems as if Rebecca sort of stored that bit of knowledge away and remained fascinated by it. And then in her 20s, I think, when she became a working journalist, she kind of took on this quite difficult project that had a very uncertain outcome. And I, as a reporter, just have enormous respect for this because it's really hard at the beginning of a journey like this to have any idea where you're going to end up. Um, You have to have enormous faith in yourself. And it it unfolds over about 10 years, right? I mean, yeah, she does the reporting over 10 years. It sounds like it took her quite a while to find a book contract. Um, She says in the acknowledgments that the book ended up going through three publishing houses and four editors, which is often 
imagine what happens when you do your reporting and writing over 10 years. And it's only, you know, now as we're appraising this book and really feeling, you know, I feel incredibly respectful of her efforts that it's clear it was all going to pay off. But there was no way she could have known that along the way. So it's really a kind of a real feat of hanging on to one's faith in oneself as a reporter, I think. And Margaret, can you talk a little bit about what she was trying to discover? I mean, we start out with this notion of HeLa cells, and it's even unclear through uh, most of the sort of mid-century kind of what is HeLa. Many people thought they belonged to a woman named Helen Lane. You know, for a lot of people, this was just background noise. Oh, we're using the HeLa cells to do research. Sort of what what was unknown at the time? What did people know and what was Rebecca Sklute trying to uncover? Well, she uh, had, as as uh, Emily says, heard that there was a woman who was the source of this incredible body of research cells that were the first, what they call immortal cells. In other words, they were cells that were taken, in this case, from a cancerous tumor, and they continued to live, and in fact, not only to live, but to grow at an enormous rate so that she has a couple of images describing how many of these there are now, but she says that they are the equivalent if you were to weigh all of the cells that have been taken from this woman, who in fact was herself a tiny woman, they would be, you know, 50 metric tons, I think it is, or um, uh, I should check that number, but it's, you know, the equivalent of, I don't know, 150 Empire State Buildings, you know, it would wrap around the world several times. These have been used, you know, to do research on the polio vaccine, on the impact of all kinds of toxins, on human cells, on all kinds of disease. Anyway. Wait, just to interrupt for one second, and, and just to emphasize, she has a great scene when the lab technicians discover the kind of magic power of these cells, because apparently, you know, this is just something scientists had been looking for for a long time, and they would try and grow cells in a culture outside the human body, and invariably they would die. So they would get a little hopeful, and then two days later, the cells would die. And then suddenly they had these kind of miracle cells, these HeLa cells, which were kind of rapidly proliferating. And that becomes problematic later, but we will talk about that in a minute. But in early science, it's very important. Right. And this is all in the 1950s. This is all in the 1950s. 1950s. Right. So what she discovers essentially is that there was this woman, Henrietta Lacks, who died at the age of 31 of cervical cancer. She had been a tobacco farmer in Virginia. She came from a poor sort of sharecropping background, you know, a small town where there was a lot of sort of, you know, intermarriage and uh, relationships between former slave owners and their slaves and then between cousins Cousins, in this this family, the Lacks family. She is, in fact, marries Henrietta Lacks, her first cousin, and has five children with him. And apparently, and, you know, she portrays her in what she's been able to find out about her, which is really kind of a lot, given that this woman did not leave behind, you know, writing and only lived to 31, and that she was this pretty lively character who loved to cook for people, had a real sense of generosity, and, you know, had this sort of flair, you know, painted her toenails and fingernails red every every night, kept up her red toenail and, and, and fingernail polish. And in fact, when one of the scientific, uh, one of the lab workers goes in and sees her body when it's getting ready to be autopsied, she says she looked at this woman's red toenails and thought for the first time, this person who we've been harvesting the cells from is a real person. She's a real woman. Right. This is somebody who sat down at night, you know, with the radio on after her kids were asleep or whatever it was and painted her toenails red and it just affected her that way for the first time. That is true. I want to be buried with my toenails <laughs> painted just for all my friends to know. Um, yeah, there's even a story I was just going to add of, of a doomed love, sort of crazy Joe, a man who was crazy in love with her, so crazy that he stabbed himself when he found out that she had married her cousin. So, you know, a lot of it is about building the this portrait of a woman with very few clues left behind, sort of 
sort of a medical record, a few relatives, some children who were difficult to reach and barely knew her because she died when they were quite young. Okay, so Rebecca sort of comes upon the name Henrietta Lacks. And, and let's just pause by saying there was confusion about the name early on. Was her name Helen Lane? You know, people didn't really knew nothing. They were using these cells knowing really nothing about this woman. Well, and I think there's a question. Perhaps we should not know her name because the scientists who took these cells without Henrietta Lacks having any idea or any in her one in her family eventually released her name, which is you know, certainly. <laughs> well, certainly now we would consider that a violation of privacy. Yes, and in fact, it would be against would. federal yes. law. But at the time, you know, standards there were very different. Rules. Yeah, right. Right. But, you know, the minute that it did become clear it was this actual woman, this was a huge shock to her descendants. And they found out about this not from Johns Hopkins, the hospital and university where the research began, but, you know, from the news, essentially. Right. And it's interesting they call it John Hopkins and not Johns Hopkins. And I think that's because it's to them a person who stole their legacy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the amazing thing about this book, I mean, A, she's she's telling a story about two things that are sort of improbable as bestsellers, right? Sort of a forgotten poor black woman who's left behind kids who are difficult, difficult to find, and a kind of, you know, scientific discovery that I wouldn't say is obscure. It's not that cells are obscure, but they're difficult to turn into a bestseller, let's say. And she really turns this into the this sort of unfolding mystery as, you know, the kids have been informed over time. There's been a documentary here and there. There was a Rolling Stone story. You know, they've gotten in bits and pieces kind of a sense of what their mother's legacy was. But you can tell from Rebecca's interactions with them that it remains this great source of kind of anger, mystery, awe and frustration to them. You know, they really have a lot of conspiratorial notions of, you know, this weird idea that their mother who they barely knew and have harbored all these kind of, you know, in the way that if your mother died when you were two, you would have this imagination about your mother, which has kind of gone, been perverted by this notion that she's immortal and lives on forever, but was never actually acting as your mother. Right. Um, Right. One of the things I really liked about Rebecca's handling of that aspect of the story is that she doesn't go overboard in psychologizing the family and trying to, you know, herself draw connections between this kind of lost, very confusing story of this mother and all the problems that exist in this family, of which there are many. You know, she kind of lets the story stand for itself in that dimension, and I thought that was really the right move to make. You know, again, as a reporter or just as a human being, you really have to admire the patience and kind of grace and doggedness altogether that she shows in maintaining a relationship with this one daughter in particular, Deborah, who is the person who, um, you know, has a number of problems, a number of health problems, you know, depression, basically was raised by uh, a sister of Henrietta's who was, you know, abusive to her, kind of rescued by a woman who marries her older brother and takes an interest in her, but, you know, basically has a really, really difficult time of it. You know, one of the ironies of this is that the family does not have health insurance um, for the most part, you know, uh, after they've, you know, their mother has made this unwitting or not donation to medical science on a grand scale. So she forms, you know, Rebecca forms this relationship with this woman, Deborah, who, you know, periodically really kind of turns on her, is very distrustful. There are all these kind of rumors in the Baltimore African-American community about Johns Hopkins, you know, actually coming and sort of stealing, Um, stealing, abducting, you know, black residents of the city for medical research, you know, some of which obviously have some echoes in in real life occurrences, 
like, you know, corpse stealing from medical research and, of course, the famous experiments like the Tuskegee experiment. So, you know, there is this distrust. But, you know, sometimes she'll be very, uh, very, very trusting and have a really good relationship with Sklut. And then other times there's one scene where she literally, you know, shoves her up against a wall and, you know, is yelling at her, do you work for Johns Hopkins? Mm -hmm. And they, they spend a great deal of time together. And, you know, she's quite irrational at times and at other times quite, you know, sympathetic. And anyway, she really hangs in with her right. and in order to get to this story and the woman's calling her in the middle of the night and clearly you know, you get the impression that Rebecca Skloot's life was completely taken over by this mission to tell this woman's story. Right. Kind of like the cells took over. I'm a little ambivalent about that's the only thing in the book which I have a little bit of hesitation about. For one thing, I think she does an amazing job of making the story accessible. And part of the way that she does that is this divided into incredibly short chapters, which never would have occurred to me to do. I'm sure that was her own decision. It's like a human drama unfolding. And part of the human drama is the relationship between her and this woman, Deborah. And I just felt like we had 10% too much about, you know, her own bravery in reporting yeah, the story. Yeah, I did that's feel the that only, a bit, I felt yeah. like, okay, so you went to this neighborhood and these people were hard to find. It's like, it wouldn't have occurred to me that that was a great drama. And that said, I think it's effective. Like, I think people reading this book and part of what makes it a bestseller is that people are experiencing this journey along with her and really sympathizing with it, even though as a reporter, I felt like it's not, you know, Right. Let that it's, go a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. No, I felt that a little bit at times too. Although I also felt the, you know, <laughs> the admiration for the exasperation she must have sometimes felt with this woman and with the whole family. But anyway, I actually was going to ask you guys, it is interesting, this book, it is one of the rare kind of nonfiction books like this that is, you know, a work of history and, you know, scholarship in a way and journalism that really has broken through. Like it's a bestseller. Right. It's, you know, Oprah Winfrey's company has optioned to make a film of it. You know, it's a real book group success. It's gotten a huge amount of coverage. We've sort of touched on it, but why, why do you, you think? You know, the opposite of most books, and this is one thing to admire about it, and then Emily, I'd like to hear what you have to say. I think that the book itself, like the packaging of the book is fairly impossible. It's obscure. It has nothing to do with the packaging. Like when I first saw this book on someone's desk, which was long before it got any reviews, I didn't really connect to it. It's only once I read the reviews and once you actually start reading the the book that it becomes gripping. So it's like usually you get a book that's like really well packaged and then you read it and it's annoying or obscure. Right. This is the opposite. Yes, I actually just yes. think the book itself like is a real page turner. Like I read it in one night. I right. sat down and read it in one night because I just really wanted to know what happened, you know. Um, Emily, but that's interesting because that really goes against what you think the way of the world is kind right, of that, right. you know. Right. These it's days. heartening, right? That it, it is could actually be the substance inside the book that we would care about. I think that's right, Hannah. I mean, I also think that this is like a really great untold story. It wasn't entirely untold. I mean, you already touched on this. There had been some coverage, but in a sense, that only makes the story more rich when Rebecca gets to it because she's dealing with the family's kind of half knowledge and half truths about what they know and the way in which that's affected them. So, you know, I think there aren't that many real life mysteries. And the other thing is she was, I mean, I guess you could say this was luck or maybe it was just a really good choice. It's far enough back in time that it was hard to figure out what happened, but it wasn't impossible. I mean, there were several relatives of Henrietta's age who were alive, who remembered her childhood, who remembered, you know, 
the drinking and smoking that went on when everybody went up to Boston to sell their tobacco. And so you get this like very evocative description of an era that's just passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that happens also in this, I think, very moving part of the book that um, involves Deborah Lax's sister. Yes, uh, this, that was amazing. The, I mean, because it turns right? the tables on what you were saying, Margaret, is like at first you feel like, you know, you could be reading a story about this young white reporter coming in wanting to tell her story about this poor black family that's just like completely crazily suspicious about the medical establishment. And then Emily comes this story about her sister, right. in which so it's all confirmed. About, yeah, Right. So Elsie Lacks, you know, probably had some congenital birth defects. Who is she? she she's was, the eldest daughter she's of She's Deborah's sister. So she's the eldest daughter of Henrietta Lacks. You know, she had physical problems, but, you know, maybe was mentally retarded. Not totally clear. She got a diagnosis of idiocy and cerebral palsy back in the day. And it sounds like Henrietta tried to take care of her at home. And then once there were several other children in the family found that she just couldn't handle Elsie anymore. And so Elsie is sent to essentially an insane asylum. And it's called even, you know, the hospital for the Negro insane in a a very creepy way. And the family really loses touch with her. And then she dies at the age of 15. And her history has also haunted Deborah in particular throughout her life. And so they go to this hospital, which is now called Crownsville, and in like a kind of amazing, I mean, this really did feel sort of providential. Yeah. The, the records of this hospital long ago had been found to have asbestos all over them. Most of them are destroyed, but there are some that have been kept in like kind of this moldy half condition in one room. And they actually find the record of Elsie's death and they find an incredibly disturbing picture of her where it really almost seems as if she's been tortured. And then Rebecca is also able to figure out that she was at the hospital during a time when it was terribly overcrowded and the conditions there were really inhumane and that she may have even been part of the kinds of, you know, medical experiments that we would never, ever countenance today, Um, you know, having holes drilled in her brain, just horrible, painful stuff. And suddenly this sort of conspiratorial edge through this book that, you know, as a kind of educated, rational person, you're poo-pooing all along the way, the fears of these family, as you were saying, Hannah, they turn out to be all too real. Well, and it's interesting because actually in the case of Henrietta herself, you know, it isn't clear that although she did not consent to the taking of the cells, you know, it's not clear that anything was changed about her treatment. She was given right, the sort or that of standard. She was Although it does sound like, you know, her cancer grew at this incredible rate that suggests that they misdiagnosed her along the way. Yeah, I suppose. But I I think that, you know, cancer care in the early 50s in general was not It didn't seem deliberate or malicious. And it had nothing to do with the value of her cells, which nobody understood. Right. And in fact, I mean, I am actually left with it. I don't know what you guys think about this. You know, Rebecca Skloot makes it clear that the question of what you actually do if you take somebody's cells or tissue, how they should be compensated, whether they should be compensated has never been settled. And whether it's really just a matter of obtaining consent and not, in fact, a matter of paying. I mean, on the one hand, we think it is terrible and ironic that here is this family living in relative poverty without health insurance, without good health care. You know, Johns Hopkins itself did not sell the cells. Uh, but apparently now, you know, they are sold by medical supply companies around the world, you know, by the vial for $200 to, you know, thousands of dollars a vial, I suppose, depending on what they're used for. And I don't know what else. But, you know, my question is actually, should people be, I mean, would you mind, let's put it that way, would you mind if you gave, you know, if you had a, I don't know, you know, a 
uh, some sort of growth removed and they took cells from it and, you know, they were used for medical research. I mean, do you feel any ownership over, I feel no connection or ownership. It would be like to me giving a urine sample or a blood sample or something. I don't, I mean, I had no volitional role in creating right. my It's so interesting. Cells. I mean, for one thing, I just want to say that in the book, she does dance around this issue of money pretty delicately because a lot of the brothers, you know, Deborah's brothers, they're just like, why aren't we getting paid? You know, and it's clear that Rebecca Sklut is trying to walk them away from that position. So at the end of the book, she says, okay, finally, you know, the brothers gave up this idea that they're somehow like Johns Hopkins took it, you know, stole their money and is making tons of money and selling. So she doesn't exactly believe that one should be compensated, but she does very forcefully believe that one should be informed. Informed and people should be credited to the extent they want to be credited. Yeah. But, you know, I wasn't at all ready to walk away from the notion they should be compensated. And I had a kind of confusing or contradictory set of reactions. I mean, Margaret, I agree with you. I, you know, if most of our cells have really little or no value. And in that situation, I don't have any sense of ownership either, nor do I particularly care what happens to them. But it does seem to me like we could carve out an exception for cell lines that prove to be tremendously valuable mm-hmm. and that the Lax family could get grandfathered in. And that if millions and millions of dollars are being made from this kind of anomalous feature of their mother's body and they have no health insurance right. and are a family that could really benefit from some of that money that someone should figure out how to give them some of that money and we should have some kind of set of rules that allows for exceptions, by which I mean compensating people who are the rare occurrence where the cell lines actually do provide. But it's a little bit complicated because... It is really complicated. Because of organ donation. I mean, I think because of this idea that you really want to avoid the notion that somebody's body parts are in any way for sale, even if demand for them is high. Right. I mean, we leave our bodies for medical research, we don't actually, you know, that it's our values of our society are represented in the notion that we do not, in fact, sell our, our organs, right? I mean, you right. can say- I guess I just don't entirely buy that. I mean, I'm someone who's kind of sympathetic to the notion of having a market for organs. Really? Yeah. It doesn't seem to me like it's necessarily <laughs> so clear that things How much have offer? really well. Yeah. Huh. I don't know. Well, I think of it a little bit like adoption, that it's just like inherently corrupting in a way that just goes yes, beyond the bounds. It's like, yeah, it, but just we the end way up with these weird situations. It's not as if having no market for these, and it's true about adoption too. It doesn't leave some pure situation where, you know, the non-compensation works very well for everyone involved. I, I know, but the, the situation that happened to Henrietta Lacks, it wouldn't happen. I mean, it might happen now. You can imagine it might happen it now, could but it's happen. much less likely that somebody without any informed consent, it could happen. Like someone could stick a form in someone's face and they could barely understand it. But, you know, there's a lot more protections than there used yeah, to be. There are, but actually, she makes clear at the end of the book that you could give your tissue without realizing it. I mean, there are a couple of men. One man, a doctor, he also has very valuable cells and the doctor tells him up front. And so he's in the driver's seat, the position that we would want to be in, where he's able to decide exactly what's happening to those cells because he knows their value ahead of time. But then there's another man who whose cells turn out to be valuable, who sues and loses in court eventually because the idea is that it would too much impede the growth of science to give individuals these rights. And yet I thought at the end of the book, Rebecca did a very good job of pointing out, you know, quoting various scientists who are saying, well, but when we don't recognize the individual's right, we really turn the scientists into the proprietors. And there's still all this money changing hands and still these, you know, incentives to patent, which do impede science. So it seemed to me like a really complicated question. You know, in a way, I was thinking, is it comparable to egg donation? You know, people buy 
eggs, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and although sperm. I guess they don't eggs and sperm, although I guess, you know, the idea with egg donation is that they still call it donation and right. that you're sort of compensating the person for their, you know, medical bills and so on. So, I mean, maybe and that's the same fiction we maintain with adoption, too. Yeah, I suppose. But I sort of am sympathetic with the values that underlie the desire to have that fiction, which is that you don't pay people for their body parts or their bodies. You know, you don't that bodies, you know, are not, in fact, for sale or, you know, shouldn't be. You know, I don't know. And I, as I say, I mean, I can't quite get around the notion that I myself, you know, feel that I've done nothing to <laughs> create. And especially if it's, you know, a cancer for that matter. It's not even something that, you know, is kind of you were born with or, you know, it's something that's growing on your body, right? And it's, I mean, I, I you know, it's something so that did you, you play feel, no Margaret- creative or, or intentional or volitional role in any way. I mean, it's... You know, so did you feel like the lax descendants had no right to any kind of any you know money no from... I felt that somebody should help them somehow because they are <laughs> no no seriously because they're in an extraordinary situation and they're apparently this is an extraordinary cell line and they happen to be really poor in general do and they happen to not have health insurance and that seems like a really depressing irony but in general do I think people should be paid for their cells? Not really, no. But then, you know, I'm remembering now that there's another question besides payment, because I think I'm with Margaret about payment of the consent. I'm not I'm not right what I said before, because it is a big point of Rebecca's book that, in fact, all the time you go to a doctor's office and leave tissues and cells and everything behind. Yes. So it's not so simple. You know, a doctor may discover later that your particular cells have some miraculous quality that other cells don't have. And so do they need to then call you and let you know, hey, you know, the haro <laughs> line of <laughs> Awesome. No, they're only Take now doing it in numeric code. You would be like 165893E. Uh, uh, you would be Embaz, right? <laughs> Ebaz. Martel Embaz. Martel. Yeah. Um, anyway, so it is fairly complicated. Let's go back to the narrative of the, the book for a minute because it does seem, you know, if nothing else, this is a unique situation in the sense that, that the mom died so young that the children were left in such bad straits and that they had these kind of this sort of wild imagination about these cells and what had happened to them. Um, The book crescendos in a moment which Rebecca Sklute has been sort of, you get the sense, preparing this family for, sort of readying them, you know, getting them sort of less angry, more informed, and sort of making them read up. I mean, she has a very nice kind of librarian relationship with uh, Deborah Lex, where she's constantly sending her reading material and she's turning Deborah Lex into her kind of co-investigator. And that's quite effective and it's leading up to a moment in which she is taking them to the lab and they are actually seeing these cells. Now, we'll pause for a minute again. Think about what sort of masterful storytelling it is that you're crescendoing to a moment where some people are going to look at a clump of cells, and yet you have somehow managed to make that a kind of amazing human drama. So, um, Margaret, just talk a little bit about what happens in that moment uh, when they go to John Hopkins, as I will forever now call it, and look at the culture of cells. Well, frankly, it is a little weird that it's John's. That's always bothered me. But anyway, okay, well, there's this scientist, Chris off. Now, what is his last name? He's an Austrian scientist. I want to give him credit because he's a decent guy. Langauer, I think. Langauer. So he is actually a scientist then at Johns Hopkins, and he uh, has worked with the HeLa cells, HeLa cells for many years on his own cancer research, and he does feel that the family has not been adequately treated, and particularly has not been adequately informed about how the cells are used and how important they are. And it's a challenge because many of the members of this family, you know, have at best a third grade 
right education at one point when he does show them the cells they ask why aren't the cells black if my mother was black right um they have a lot of uh confusion and kind of fundamental misapprehensions that no one has ever tried to explain but that it's also difficult to explain right because right. you know they don't really have the background and this is pretty complex stuff anyway and pretty weird stuff when you think about it, the mortal cell lines. Um, and in fact, she says at one point when Johns Hopkins at one point does contact Henrietta's widower to say that they want to do some more testing on uh, Henrietta's descendants, her children, and they say something about having his wife's cells and he actually thinks that his wife may be alive in some form right. or another in a lab and they've been experimenting on her all these years. So right. anyway, there are a lot of you know thickets of doubt and suspicion and misunderstanding. To and through. let's just say that for many of the early parts of the story, Johns Hopkins does not do a good job of explaining what is going on right. or saying why they want to do these tests on not the at all. children. Not at all. Oh, right. You're talking about the DNA tests when they're trying to... Right. Well, we should right. just yeah. back up a tiny bit and say what's happened is that... Um, you know, these cells, which had been so miraculous, suddenly took on a taint at some point. Was it in the 80s? Was it that late? Anyway, yeah. at some point in their in their history and scientific research, they took on a taint because somebody discovered that they were cancer cells and that they might have tainted all sorts of other cells. Contaminated other, all sorts of other cells. They were growing so fast that they contaminated all these other cells. In Russia, for example, at one right, point, right. because they're around, the, they're all over the world, the cells. Right. And that's kind of amazing, too, when you think that then, then they kind of face, apparently. And they'd to space. That's something they keep telling the family, which they intend to make the family proud, but which actually makes right. the family feel like incredibly freaked out. Like, you know, they keep saying like, wow, your mom's cells have gone to space. And they're like, what? Like, what does that <laughs> right. even mean? And that, right. it kind of backfires on everyone. But this is a moment when investigators are trying to figure out, you know, more about these cells that possibly contaminated so much of medical research. And so they want to do DNA tests on the surviving uh, family members. Anyway, so go ahead. So they bring them to the Johns Hopkins. Lab. Uh, should I read this part? Yes, that would be great. Okay. She's... Deborah has just mentioned to this scientist, Christoph, that she knows about this contamination problem that, that they've had. And she says, my mother was just getting back at scientists for keeping all them secrets from the family, Deborah said. You don't mess with Henrietta. She'll sick Gila on your ass. <laughs> Everyone laughed. Christoph reached into the freezer behind him, grabbed another vial of HeLa cells, and held it out to Deborah, his eyes soft. She stood stunned for a moment, staring into his outstretched hand, then grabbed the vial and began rubbing it fast between her palms like she was warming herself in winter. She's cold, Deborah said, cupping her hands and blowing onto the vial. Christoph motioned for us to follow him to the incubator where he warmed the cells, but Deborah didn't move. As Zakaria and Christoph walked away, she raised the vial and touched it to her lips. You're famous, she whispered. Just nobody knows it. That's an amazing summary of what the book is about. You're famous and just nobody knows it. And also moments like that. I mean, Rebecca Sklute does this sort of, again, she's delicate and she doesn't go on too much about this, but about the notion of kind of, you know, like mystical ideas and faith and, you know, this idea that, that Henrietta Lacks was somehow is kind of driving the action as some kind of spirit, you know, driving both the action in Rebecca Sklute's life and the action in taking revenge on certain scientists. And it's it's actually ultimately a pretty powerful 
kind of view yeah, of these yeah. immortal cells because science is weird and faith is weird. You know, it is a moment and where these science cells are and weird. Faith, their, yeah, their, yeah. their their ability to replicate is, is bizarre and sort of unexplained. I mean, they don't really know why these cells of all cells have been so hardy and so uh, powerful. Right. right. And, that's or, a, and also the technical medical explanation for that, which has to do with telomeres, that also sounds almost sort of supernatural too, even right. though it's science. Right. And that's a moment where I think the author could have, you know, stopped and given digressed about faith and science and she doesn't. You know, she just lets it stand that there's like weirdness on the one hand and, weird, and, and sort here of are these two explanations yeah. and, you know, yeah. sort of maybe we need to combine them. I also think it matters that the book is called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. I mean, it must have mattered enormously to the family to have their mother's name in the title and it doesn't sound like a science book, actually. The title moves more toward the kind of family understanding um, mm-hmm. than it does a scientific one. Right. And, you know, finally, that's sort of one when we were talking about the strength of, of the book, I think, you know, it, it appeals on so many levels, like a human story, a, a very important, you know, scientific story. I mean, you could read it and be interested in any one of those things. Have any of you heard uh, Rebecca Sklute interviewed? By the way, we should say at the end, uh, Deborah does die, which is very sad. I mean, it's a sad moment and you and it really, again, adds a level of drama to the story. Like she, you know, the journey began, the journey ended. Uh, she lost touch with Deborah for a while. And then when she tries to find her again, she finds out that Deborah died. But I am quite curious about the sort of postscript. Uh, I'm sure we'll read more about it, but sort of what happens and what happens to her relationship with the family and if they are compensated. I mean, have either of you ever read read anything like that about the story? I don't know too much about that other than that I know she started a foundation. And she says at one point in the book when actually I think someone in the family asks if she's going to pay them, Rebecca's glute. She says she can't pay them because, you know, I assume because it's unethical as a journalist, checkbook journalism. But she says that she's going to start a foundation. Uh, a scholarship. A scholarship. Fund. And a it's scholarship actually on fund. the back cover. That's right. For the descendants of Henrietta Lacks. I noticed, for example, that on Rebecca Sklut has quite an elaborate website and there is a clip from a CBS morning news program segment about her where the family is interviewed, the sort of the whole family, the two sons who are alive and um, – kind of talking to the press. And so, you know, they seem to be kind of on board with talking to the media more now since the book. So Uh I don't know that they've been asked what they think of it, but I assume they're fairly favorable to the extent of being willing to participate in interviews related to it. Right. Um, They did ultimately decide that Henrietta had chosen Deborah to tell the story. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Rebecca. Rebecca, sorry, had chosen Rebecca to tell the story. Right. You know. Rebecca also tweeted the other day that Henrietta Lacks's grave finally has a marker. It had been unmarked all these years. Uh, That uh seemed like quite a lovely capstone. Oh, really? That's kind of amazing Mm -hmm. Um, that it had been unmarked. That's very poetic. Mm -hmm. Um, Just finally, since we often ask this question, you know, another thing that's interesting about this book, is there anyone you wouldn't recommend it to? It occurs to me that I could recommend it to lovers of novels, you know, women, men, people of many ages, scientists, not, you know, it has a very universal appeal that way. That's an interesting question. Yeah. And I agree with you. I agree with you, actually. This is Hannah Rosen from Double X. I just want to sign off by saying that we picked this book because it was a reader recommendation. Someone suggested it on our Double X GabFest Facebook page, and it worked really well. So we uh, welcome suggestions from readers in the future about what our next book should be since we haven't chosen it yet. So come and check out our Facebook page and let us know what you think. Well, thank you guys so much. Thank you, Emily from New Haven. And thank you, Margaret, for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure, as always. thank you, Abdul. Yes, and Thank you, Abdul, for recording. Bye. Bye.